Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. C.R. Kelly was loving his still relatively new life as sheriff in West Plains, Missouri, as Christmas neared in 1931. Kelly and his wife, Lulu, had moved to the town from Mountain View, Missouri, just three years earlier. Before becoming sheriff, he had been a traveling salesman for a candy company where he'd been one of its most popular employees. As the 1920s drew to a close, he and his wife decided it was time for a change. Kelly was the only Democrat elected in Howell County in the 1928 election. He became as popular there as he'd been at his sales job. To be fair, it wasn't the world's toughest job. There were only some 11,000 residents at the time. So when a department store was robbed a week before Christmas, it stood out. Someone had cut through some iron bars on a window then somehow managed to sneak in a very small opening to let some accomplices in the door. Luckily, someone had spotted the getaway car. The next day, Sheriff Kelly got a call from a worker in a garage who said, gee, this car that just came in needing new tires sure looks like the one described in today's newspaper. Kelly went over, spotted the blue sedan, and approached to talk to the three men inside. The driver was in no mood to talk. He opened fire straight away. Kelly was killed instantly. Townsfolk, outraged that their new sheriff was cut down in such cold-blooded fashion, took up arms and scoured for the culprits. What they didn't know is that the men they sought included Fred Barker, whose family, including his mom, would soon be at the top of the country's most wanted list. And they would inadvertently end rampant corruption in St. Paul, Minnesota. Not only that, but it solidified the power and the reputation that the FBI would have for generations to come. Each object, even a hatband, may provide a clue. Special equipment like this is furnished to 37 branch centers throughout the country. The laboratory at Washington provides chemical analysis of everything. Enlarged fingerprints thrown on a screen, speed identification of criminals. Last but not least, G-men must shoot straight and fast to get their man, dead or alive. Several of the crimes of the centuries that I explore from the 1920s and 1930s are going to have a couple of common elements that bind them. One will be the detective magazines of the era. I mean, these things did more than just glamorize violence. They damn near elevated thieves and killers to hero status. The most popular in the genre was True Detective, founded in 1924. But cops and robbers and Old West outlaw tales had been published long before that. Another tie that binds is prohibition. When the smarty pants who ran the government decided to start outlawing alcohol in America in 1917, 
their intentions were maybe good. I mean, break down any given crime, and booze is often an ingredient. But prohibition didn't help curb crime and poverty. It heightened it, creating a black market that gave rise to some of our country's most notorious mobsters. The rum running era opens. The Coast Guard trains its guns on liquor smugglers, desperately risking their lives for the rich returns from bootleg booze. The tale of the Barker Carpus gang begins with those two elements. We'll start with the now infamous matriarch, Ma Barker, who was born Arizona Clark in 1874. She went by Ari the first half of her life. At 19, she married a man named George Barker. Come 1910, she was still going by Ari. We know this because that's her name in the census that year. But along the way, she dumped Ari and started going by Kate. Later, she'd become known as Ma Barker. Most people today remember Ma Barker as the woman played by actress Shelley Winters. This is Paul Maccabee, an author whose book John Dillinger Slept Here examines the era. In the Roger Corman film Bloody Mama. All right, now everybody reach for the night down of the Lord. Reach. All right, now we're all going to play a game. I'm sure you all know it. It's called Simon Says. Where Shelley, playing Ma Barker, was on the running board of a Depression-era car, holding a machine gun under her arm and blasting away at the police. That's the way the FBI described Ma Barker. Back when she was known merely as Kate, Ma wasn't thrilled with her husband, George. She had always dreamed of a better life, and he worked odds and ends jobs that could barely keep the family afloat. In their first decade together, Ma gave birth to four sons, Herman, Lloyd, Arthur, who went by the nickname Doc, and Fred, the baby of the group. When she wanted to escape the doldrum of her day-to-day existence, she read about the sexy exploits of criminals. On its own, that wouldn't have mattered much. But it just so happens Ma had a malfunctioning moral compass. And when her four kids started doing the types of things she read about in her magazines, well, she didn't waste much energy on discouraging them. Ma Barker had four sons, all of them criminals. They were just hoodlums. Ma's oldest son, Herman, started early. He was a small guy, but very violent. Between 1914 and 1916, he had been arrested at least three different times for assault, robbery, and burglary and larceny. On August 10, 1916, he was sentenced to four years in prison, but 11 days later, he and a fellow convict lured jailer William Bishop into a bullpen, threatened to kill him with a razor, locked him in the pen with other inmates, and fled. On their way out, they stole three revolvers from Bishop's desk drawer. The other Barker kids weren't faring much better. Arthur Barker, Ma's third-born, went by Doc and started a kitty gang with Herman when the two were just teenagers. The two most famous of Ma Barker's sons, Arthur, Doc Barker, and Freddie Barker, were kidnappers, bank robbers, murderers, burglars, and thieves. The backdrop to this was prohibition. Newsflash, people liked to drink, and the early 20th century was maybe a bad time to experiment with making the country go dry. World War I had just ended. 
the Spanish flu had wiped out nearly 700,000 people in this country and 50 million people worldwide. I mean, I'm recording this around death 200,000 in the pandemic of 2020, and I don't know a lot of people who've curbed their alcohol intake. Actually, hold on while I take a shot. Once I loved a fond affection, as I thought it killed me. It's good by the river, we'll had a good time. Had a good time, drinking booze, drinking wine, drinking wine. To say prohibition was an unpopular law is an understatement, and the unintended consequences for the whole nation were dire. It meant that there were tremendous amounts of bribery and corruption. And it was that corruption that lasted because prohibition was repealed, not too many years afterwards, but all of these bought corrupted, bribed cops and public officials were still bribed, were still in service to the criminals. Prohibition led to a rise in organized crime. Al Capone, who had joined his first gang around 1915, dominated organized crime in Chicago by 1925. John Dillinger started stealing cars in the 20s. Homes throughout the country were built with basement speakeasies. The liquor would be brought down from Canada to Minnesota and then to cities all across America on the train. And sometimes the casks filled with liquor, they'd have stenciled on it perfume or alcohol rub, as if there needed to be millions of gallons of massage oil or alcohol rub, whatever. The money brought in through illegal booze sales was insane, and that made it pretty easy to put cops on the payroll. Social norms were being thrust out the window, too, and this is the 20s. Women were cutting their hair short and daring to wear pants. And good God, have you heard about jazz? All in all, this era wasn't much for following the rules, and that played into the Barker's lawlessness. There's a, a saying in Minnesota that in the wake of the passage of Prohibition, 50% of Minnesotans were making illegal liquor and the other 50% were drinking it. Think about it. You're living in a world where there's this law that no one is abiding. People around you are making millions from breaking that law, including police and politicians. How do you foster respect for law and order when your own cops are corrupt? It's a question that still gets asked today. Each time her boys got in trouble, Ma would appeal to the arresting officer or the prosecutor or the judge, whoever would listen, basically, and either deny the charges outright or insist that they were good boys who just made a mistake. Time and again, she got her kids out of trouble, or at least mitigated the punishment. Then came 1922. That's the year her second oldest, Lloyd, was sentenced to 25 years in prison for robbing a postal truck of $7,500. It's also the year Doc was sentenced in Oklahoma for killing a night watchman named Thomas Sherrill, Though, ironically, it would turn out he was likely innocent of that one, according to a confession by another outlaw years later. Come 1925, Herman and Fred were the only Barker boys out of prison. 
on December 16th, they robbed an Arkansas bank of $7,000. A spate of robberies followed. In 1926, Fred was picked up and convicted of grand larceny and sentenced to five to 10 years in Kansas. That left Herman on his own. So in 1927, he joined up with another gang and helped with another robbing spree in Oklahoma, Missouri, and Texas. He was picked up briefly in January with a fellow outlaw after stealing $41,000 from a bank in Joplin, Missouri. He should have been in prison, but having cops as allies was really one of his fortes. A deputy sheriff named Frank Warner was charged with preventing the delivery of Herman to proper authorities. Warner denied it, but the bottom line is that someone on the inside was helping Herman. That's how he was still free on August 1st when he tried to cash in some stolen traveler's checks, but the teller got suspicious and called police. Deputy Sheriff Art Osborne answered the call and pulled over a Chrysler coach driven by Herman's wife, Carol. As soon as Osborne approached, Herman shot him dead. Police caught up with him a few weeks later in Cheyenne and opened fire. Herman, mortally wounded, hastened his death with a bullet to his head. Herman's death wrecked his parents. George, his father, left Ma soon after. He later told a reporter, quote, they chose their path and I followed mine, end quote. The stock market crashed in 1929, launching the Great Depression. Now people were out of work, scared, starving. Banks collapsed, taking families' lifelong savings with them. Bank robbers became these sort of Robin Hood-style anti-heroes. Doc Barker had still been in prison for the Night Watchman murder when 1930 rolled around. That surely did not endear law enforcement to Fred and Ma, who stuck together as Fred joined one posse after another. Maybe that's why Fred didn't hesitate to kill Sheriff C.R. Kelly a week before Christmas in 1931. Fred had recently escaped from a jail in Claremore, Oklahoma. He and Alvin Karpis, whom he had met behind bars, had robbed the C.C. McAllen store the day prior. They made the sloppy decision not to ditch the stolen blue sedan they had used in the crime. So when the two men, as well as a clueless hitchhiker they had strangely decided to pick up along the way, stopped for repairs at Davidson Garage, the owner discreetly called the sheriff. When Sheriff Kelly sauntered up to ask a few questions, Fred fired six bullets, hitting the sheriff with three. Alvin Carpus, Creepy Carpus, said in his autobiography, they didn't have to kill the sheriff. So they were very psychotic, sociopath killers, not, not nice guys. Hundreds of people went to his funeral. Lulu, his wife, actually inherited his job as sheriff. So when she started hunting for the men who killed her predecessor, it was incredibly personal. She quickly announced a reward for his killers. By Christmas, Fred and Carpus had been ID'd as the main suspects. A tip led authorities to a 10-acre farm in Thayer, Missouri, rented by Arthur W. Dunlop, an older man who had sidled up to Ma after George left. The farm served as home to the couple, who presented themselves as husband and wife, and two men they introduced as their son and nephew. They had rigged an alarm system to alert them to any intruders. As soon as the front gate on the property opened, 
a bell in the bedroom would ring. By the time police arrived to arrest them, they were long gone. The chief of police and sheriff together offered a reward of $300 each for the arrest and surrender of Fred and Carpus, with another $200 payable upon conviction. They wrote, quote, We will come after them any place, end quote. Lower in the announcement, Ma Barker gets her first criminal mention. Quote, An additional reward of $100 each will be paid for the arrest and surrender to Howell County officers of A.W. Dunlop and Old Lady Ari Barker, mother of Fred Barker. Dunlop is about 65 years of age, slender, white hair, full-blood Irishman. Mrs. Barker is about 60 years of age. All may be found together on farm. We hold felony warrants for each of these parties. End quote. Now, the Barkers had always been darting from one home to another, but once they killed Sheriff Kelly, it was impossible to stay anywhere very long. Part of that was owed to chance. It just so happened that Kelly's shooting kicked off a spate of officer deaths over the subsequent weeks. Nine South Missouri officers died between December 19th and January 14th, 1932. Eight of the nine were killed by escaping desperados. The last was thought to be suicide. Most of the killers had either been arrested or killed themselves, making law enforcement even more determined to find Fred and Carpus. Now, interestingly, just as Fred was getting into his deepest trouble, Doc was resurfacing from his. A story in the Minneapolis Star Tribune reported that Alfalfa Bill, as the governor was known, because why not, had granted early release to seven killers who'd been serving time in prison, And Doc Barker was among them. Instead of serving a life sentence, Doc was released after 11 years. He spent a bit of time reconnecting with his dad in Missouri, where he got a few letters letting him know how to track down his brother Fred, his mother, and Arthur Dunlop. The crew had moved to St. Paul, Minnesota. It was an ideal home base, thanks to a system established by a corrupt police chief named John O'Connor some three decades earlier. St. Paul was a safe city for gangsters. And there were many safe cities. Hot Springs, Arkansas, you could be a killer and just relax there. Outside of Chicago, Al Capone's Cicero, a safe haven for gangsters. But I think none was so safe and harboring as St. Paul in the 1930s. There was a deal that the police had with the criminals called the O'Connor system. It was named after the police chief, John O'Connor of St. Paul. This was around the turn of the century. And he basically established a welcome mat for kidnappers, killers, hitmen, bank robbers. Come to St. Paul. While you're in St. Paul, you, Mr. Bank Robber Killer, have to follow these rules. When you arrive at our train station in downtown St. Paul, you have to identify yourself. You have to tell us where you're staying. And if you don't have a place to stay while you plan your crimes, we, the police, will get you an apartment. You have to give us a bribe. So when the trains arrive from Chicago and elsewhere, the crooks would have jewelry, stolen jewelry in their hands, ready to give to the police. Of course, there was a rub. Perhaps the most important thing. When you, Mr. Bank Robber, are in the city limits of St. Paul, you can't commit any crimes in St. Paul. You can do 
anything you want to outside of St. Paul. Come back to St. Paul for safe haven, but you have to be on your best behavior. And that's why St. Paul became Disneyland for crooks. And the people of St. Paul who knew this. O'Connor retired in 1920, but his rules stayed put. There were attempts at reform, particularly by a chief named Thomas Dayhill. But the O'Connor system was too entrenched to shake. And it was a vicious system. Criminals who broke the rules were often brutally beaten. Because that would put at risk a system of corruption that was funneling hundreds of thousands of dollars to cops and tens of millions of dollars of bank robbery loot to the criminals. The Barkers adhered to the system. They rented a nice duplex atop a hill from which they could keep eye on the neighborhood. Their landlords knew them as the Anderson family and found them not to just be pleasant, but welcoming. They'd moved in just after the Sheriff Kelly killing, and had that crime not been so high profile, they might have lasted in St. Paul a long while. It turned out, though, that True Detective magazine featured them in an issue that the landlord's son read in 1932. The landlord alerted police, who could have caught the killers straight away, but instead, some cops on the take tipped them off and dragged their feet. By the time the cops showed up some seven hours after receiving the tip, the clan was long gone. Unfortunately for Ma Barker's common-law husband, Arthur Dunlop, the family hadn't been tipped off that the person who turned them in had been their landlord. They suspected it was Dunlop. His naked, bullet-riddled body was soon found in Wisconsin. He learned the hard way what it meant to cross the Barkers. The rampant police corruption was no secret in St. Paul, according to author Paul Maccabee. In fact, some people found the alliance between cops and criminals reassuring. After all, the bad guys had promised not to do bad things in St. Paul. Maccabee said it wasn't uncommon for people in the city to see Dillinger walking down the street or somebody else from the most wanted list eating at a nearby restaurant. That's why a kidnapping in St. Paul on June 15, 1933, was especially jarring. A millionaire named William Ham Jr. headed home for lunch from his job running the Theodore Ham Brewing Company when members of the Barker Carpus gang accosted him. Kidnapping by no means was a new crime, but it was new to the Barker boys. It seems they liked the idea of trying for a big payday without all the variables you have to factor in when you're robbing a bank or a store. And some of those people just won't cooperate. The scheme seemed to work out well. Ham was blindfolded and kept in a hideout. He stayed very calm and cooperative. His family gathered money and they successfully made the switch. Ham returned home physically unharmed. In today's terms, this pissed off many people in St. Paul. I mean, it's one thing to look the other way when known killers are tooling around when you know it's an exchange for you and your neighbor's guaranteed safety. But once that guarantee was violated, they were mad. In 1934, the group pulled the same stunt again, this time with a man named Edward Bremer. He was 34 and president of Commercial State Bank. If you remember, this is during the Great Depression, when bankers weren't looked upon very favorably. 
The gang demanded $200,000 for Bremer's return. That's twice as much as they had asked for him. And they held on to the poor man for weeks while his family worked to gather it. Eventually, they made the trade, but it went nowhere as smoothly as Ham's abduction. This was the beginning of the end when it came to St. Paul's tolerance of dirty cops, but more on that later. First, here's how the story played out for the Barker Carpus gang. That's Ma Barker and the two sons she still had with her, Fred and Doc, as well as Alvin Carpus, who was like another son to her. They bounced around a bit, trying to find a way to launder the ransom money. But the crimes had been so high profile that finding partners willing to take the risk was proving tough. Doc split off from Fred and Ma, who went to Florida and rented a nice house on the water that they bragged in letters to Doc had its own houseboat. Doc planned to join them soon, but it turned out the Barkers were running out of luck. That's because the FBI got involved and the Barker Carpus gang became a national priority. Quick backstory on the Bureau. It started in 1908 under President Theodore Roosevelt as the Department of Justice. Over the next decade or so, it evolved, slowly taking on more and more work. But a lot of that work was pretty menial. I mean, between 1921 and 1933, today's FBI would have been slammed. What with all the bootlegging and gangsters and such. But back then, the department had no authority over booze or bootlegging, which was at the heart of a lot of the crime they were fighting. Instead, that kind of stuff was supposed to be handled by the Department of the Treasury. In May 1924, J. Edgar Hoover was appointed director, and he started working to upend everything. J. Edgar Hoover established the FBI as the premier law enforcement agency in the world, and he was a, a Jekyll and Hyde figure, in my view. This is Ronald Kessler, who knows a lot about this subject. He's author of 21 nonfiction books, including one called The Secrets of the FBI. On the one hand, he established the fingerprint files, the whole filing system. He insisted that agents not engage in brutality, which was very common in police departments at the time. Hoover did something else, too. He marketed the agency. By that, I mean he talked it up wherever he went. They made movies. They wrote books. They had newsreels. Before you'd see a movie, you would see an FBI short film. Hoover courted reporters and made sure that the agency was mentioned in the new True Detective magazines. He fired subpar agents and strengthened training for the ones who remained. He insisted that they appear to be moral upstanding, squeaky clean lawmen. Hoover certainly pretended to be ethical, and he certainly was very strict with with agents about their conduct. Anybody who strayed away from any of his dictates, which included a lot of quirks, no coffee drinking, for example, would would be disciplined very severely. He nicknamed them G-men for government men as a sort of counter-programming to the anti-heroes Dillinger and Capone. This turned FBI agents into superheroes. There were comic books extolling their virtues. They could do no wrong. In the early 1930s, he set his sights on gangsters in general, but especially on John Dillinger, who had become head of a notorious gang of bank robbers. Dillinger, he announced was public enemy number one. 
Newspaper reporters seem to revel in the drawn-out showdown between the two. A headline on April 26, 1934, in Utah's Salt Lake Tribune, read, Cool Justice Chief Directs Outlaw Hunt. The feel-good, fluffy piece called Hoover massive, cool, methodical, and characterized him more as an executive than an old-timey sleuth. Quote, Goggles, gumshoes, and false whiskers are out. Card indexes, fingerprints, scientific analyses, records, minute studies of known gangs and gangsters, roadmaps and pictures and personal reports of thugs, their daily behavior, and their habitat are in. End quote. Eventually, Hoover got his man. The official story is that in July 1934, Dillinger's girlfriend tipped off agents that she and Dillinger were going to the movies. The FBI arranged outlooks, and Dillinger was killed in a volley of gunfire. The next day, photos of lawmen posing with his corpse ran on front pages nationwide. And that, of course, added to the reputation of the FBI, the reputation of Hoover. It put the FBI on the map. And that was very important, not only because it enhanced the power of of the FBI, but it also made people want to cooperate with the FBI because it, it was so successful. The FBI became a real legend. Dillinger's story was over, but J. Edgar Hoover had grown to like all of those public enemy headlines. For those to keep going, he needed to cast a new villain. Dillinger's death opened the door for Hoover to publicly declare other gangsters as public enemy number one, and that included Alvin Karpis, whom Hoover decided was the leader of the gang that kidnapped Ham and Bremer. Karpis was promoted to U.S. public enemy number one following the capture of John Dillinger. The public loved this story. Dillinger was such a celebrity that hundreds of people filed by his corpse while it lay in the morgue. People dipped handkerchiefs into his blood to keep his souvenirs. They were thrilled to have the story continue with new outlaws. It's possible Dillinger's death spooked the Barkers and Carpus because they weren't so careless as to go to a movie theater. In fact, that's when they split up. Doc went to Chicago while Fred and Ma Barker rented that waterfront home in Florida. On January 8, 1935, Agents were tipped off to two gang members' whereabouts. First, they shot and killed Russell Gibson, one of the many also-rans involved with a gang, and then they raided a Chicago home that turned out to be Doc's. When they searched that place, they found letters from Fred and Ma describing their new rental. The postmark gave away their city as Oklawaha. The feds were much better at keeping secrets than the local corrupt police, So news of Doc's arrest was kept quiet until after agents figured out which waterfront home was housing the Barkers. That day came January 16th. At about 6.45 a.m., more than a dozen agents surrounded a white and green eight-room house on Lake Weir that had been rented to a Mr. T.C. Blackburn. They circled the cabin and shouted in something like, come out with your hands up, like they do in the movies. And apparently Freddie shouted, like in the movies, you know, oh, you dirty coppers, you'll never catch me alive. Fred punctuated that reply with machine gun fire. And they engaged in a six-hour gun battle between Freddie Barker and the FBI, 
Finally, Freddie was dead. The FBI sent a man into the cottage. They found Freddie lying dead, bullet riddled. And next to Freddie was an old woman. The FBI had no idea who the elderly female corpse was. They identified her by her fingerprints. And as far as I can tell from the FBI records that I reviewed, the FBI realized, oh my God, we killed Freddie's mother. And that was not going to read well for the newspapers. When word came that a 61-year-old woman had been shot alongside her son, it seems Hoover got worried the public might balk. After all, Ma Barker had only been mentioned obliquely in newspaper stories up until then. She was known to travel with her outlaw sons and had a warrant against her as an accessory in Sheriff Kelly's death, but she was still just a mom. It was Alvin Karpis that they said was the leader of the gang. Ma Barker had never been on the FBI's most wanted list, not even as a lowly number two. In all the coverage about her boy's many, many crimes, she was never reported to have taken part, not even as just a getaway driver. I could only find her nickname Ma appearing once in Missouri newspapers before her death. There is no indication in the FBI files that the FBI knew that Ma Barker had committed anything worse than a parking ticket. That's not the story they told reporters. The Associated Press reported after the shooting, quote, When Ma Barker fell, the department said she was holding a machine gun in her hand and part of the drum of cartridges had been exhausted, end quote. The story later reads, quote, Ma Barker has been mentioned as the brains of the group and was said to have directed their activities in a number of bank robberies throughout the Middle West, end quote. Ma's photo even ran bigger than Fred's on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. All of that transformed Ma Barker, Kate Barker, into the criminal mastermind that we know today. The FBI claimed, and still claims, that Ma Barker planned the notorious kidnapping of two of the wealthiest men in Minnesota. And according to the FBI, it was Ma Barker who planned everything, how they were gonna grab them, where they were gonna hide them, how they would ask for the ransom, etc. The FBI had successfully transformed Ma from an objectively bad but loyal mother to the brains behind the whole Barker Carpus gang operation. Hollywood loved this character Hoover had created. In 1960, a low-budget movie called Ma Barker's Killer Brood was released. In 1970 came Bloody Mama, the one I mentioned with Shelley Winters. Teresa Russell played the bloodthirsty mama in 1996's Public Enemy. And then there's a whole host of characters that aren't named Ma Barker, but were inspired by her. Ma Fratelli in The Goonies, Ma Parker in the 60s Batman series, Ma Beagle in DuckTales. And the story about this grandmotherly hardcore criminal took hold. But after Watergate, a little law called the Freedom of Information Act was passed, which slowly gave the public access to more and more of the FBI's old records. The FBI files, 100,000 pages of FBI files that I read in the J. Edgar Hoover building in D.C., tell a very different story. Turned out, Hoover was no squeaky clean lawman. 
he might have done some good things as FBI director. But on the other hand, Hoover engaged in massive abuses. And the chief one was that he kept blackmail files on members of Congress and presidents in order to maintain his position as director. The truth was that people who actually knew Ma Barker described her as a kindly grandmother. Neighborhood kids knew her as the old lady who would always buy their fundraising raffle tickets and give them free donuts. Surely she knew her boys were wanted, but she was no criminal mastermind. The best description of Ma Barker was said by a bank robber, Harvey Bailey, who was of the period in the 1930s, and he knew Ma Barker. And when he was asked by someone, did Ma Barker plan all those crimes, kidnappings, bank robberies that the Barker Carpus gang did? Harvey's response was, Ma Barker plan a bank robbery, he said? That sweet old woman could barely plan breakfast. The Ma Barker legend was also challenged by Alvin Carpus, who amazingly lived to be 72 years old. He was arrested in New Orleans in 1936. Carpus later wrote in his memoirs that Ma Barker was no mastermind. The boys didn't even talk about their escapades in front of her, he said. This is Alvin Carpus speaking. This is years after he left the gang lifestyle. The matter of fact is no one ever heard of her until after she had been slaughtered by the FBI down in, in Florida down in 1935, and then they built her up over the years gradually as a, a monster. The truth of the matter was she's a old religious, uh, one of those uh, holy roller religious type in the Ozarks. She never read newspapers. Uh, the only thing she listened to on the radio was Hillbilly Program, and her greatest pastime was working jigsaw puzzles. Now, the tale of the Barker Carpus gang was salacious, of course. But it was also more than that. It left a mark. As mentioned earlier, the Brummer kidnapping was the last straw for a lot of St. Paul residents. The O'Connor layover rule, the one that welcomed criminals with open arms, had never been a secret. And there, of course, had always been people morally opposed to quietly harboring murderous fugitives but it had mostly been tolerated. There, of course, were upstanding officers during all of this, but attempts to reform the police department just failed. Chief Thomas Dayhill, who had tried desperately to reform the place, had been pushed out and replaced by a lovely man named Tom Brown, who had actually been paid $25,000 of the ham kidnapping ransom money. Remember, that was $100,000. Seriously, the chief got a bigger cut than any of the kidnappers. According to Maccabee, that huge cut was because... In fact, it was Tom Brown who told the Barker Carpus gang, you know who you should kidnap? You should kidnap Billy Ham because the Ham Brewery was making a fortune after Prohibition was repealed. People were thirsty. And Ed Bremer, for $200,000, kidnapped because he ran one of the biggest banks. Brown was fired. But allegiances die hard. Tom Brown never spent a day in jail, never punished. Cleaning up the department was, of course, slow going, as such things tend to be. But it did happen. And the impetus was the Barker Carpus gang. 
The gang's violent end and Ma Barker's subsequent reimagining as a ruthless criminal rather than just a bad mom to four hoodlums also helped elevate Hoover to hero status and solidified the FBI's standing as a premier law enforcement agency. When we know the names Ma Barker, John Dillinger, arguably Machine Gun Kelly, Pretty Boy Floyd, if it had not been for the fact that the FBI elevated these gangsters, and they were bad men, but none of them were as bad as Al Capone, And it really was these 1930s public enemies, as it were, who enabled Hoover to make the FBI the criminal justice juggernaut titan that it has been for the last three quarters of a century. A couple of postscripts. Doc Barker, whose lair in Chicago led agents straight to the Florida hideout, was sentenced to life in Alcatraz. You might know Alcatraz. It's that prison on an island off California nicknamed The Rock. He and Carpus were both there, in fact, because that's where the country's most dangerous criminals were sent. Alcatraz had a reputation of being impossible to escape, which Doc apparently took as a personal challenge. On January 13, 1939, he and three fellow inmates broke free. They didn't get far. Doc was killed by a guard who shot him in the head. And remember there was one other Barker boy, too? That would be Lloyd. He had been in prison the entire time his family was in Hoover's sights, which is kind of ironic because he seemed to be the only Barker boy who didn't kill anyone. It seemed his earlier arrest spared him the gruesome fates of his brothers. He married a woman named Jean and became a loving stepdad to her two kids. He and Jean had two kids of their own as well. It sure looked like Lloyd was going to be the one Barker who ultimately led a normal, respectable life. And then he came home March 19, 1949, to check on his wife, who said she felt ill. As he opened his front door, he had no idea Jean was standing on the other side with a shotgun raised. She blasted Buckshot into his neck, killing him instantly. Jean was sent to an insane asylum and the Barker clan was officially finished. To research this case, I spent way too many hours digging through old newspapers, largely because I kept finding mistakes in the books I tried to reference, so I had to keep going back to verify things. I use one book in particular called Ma Barker and the Barker Carpus Gang, the controversial history of the criminal gang during the Great Depression. I'd also like to thank authors Ron Kessler and Paul McAbee for their insight. Kessler on the era in general, and J. Edgar Hoover specifically, and McAbee on the gang itself and St. Paul's historic corruption. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 